Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Help Side Basketball Coaching Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, John Jansen, and I come to you today from deep inside the bubble here in my apartment, not in Orlando. And we have a lot to talk about. Hopefully everybody is doing okay, having a good summer, trying to maintain somewhat distance from each other. And uh, it's good to see the sports are starting back up again. We've seen uh, soccer and bas- and, uh, and uh, golf and, you know, some race car stuff. And basketball and soccer in America are starting to gear up and starting to practice and stuff like that. So it's very exciting. And we're all hoping here at the lower levels that they will kind of be the guinea pig and set the example for maintaining a safe environment for all of our players and coaches and staff and all that good stuff. So today what we are going to talk about is um, the NBA bubble for a little bit, and we're going to talk about the Zion Williamson situation. In the analytics section, we're going to talk about subbing players And in the strategy session, we're going to be talking about boxing out and some boxing out drills that I like to do. So let's get right into it. First thing I want to talk about is the NBA bubble. It's a little bit funny thinking about how many teams they're sending, the fact that they're sending only nine from one conference and 13 from the other. And obviously everyone believes it's so they can get Zion Williamson eight more games. And what that will do for ratings and popularity and all that kind of good stuff. To me, it's kind of silly. They're three and a half games back with eight games to play. So even if they go 8-0, which they're probably not going to, then Memphis only has to go 5-3. and three. And every loss that they have means Memphis has to win one game less. And then also you have to look at the other couple teams that are tied with them. They also have to beat out those guys, and I don't know who has a tiebreaker and stuff like that. So it's kind of silly. Again, it's bringing more teams into the bubble, which means more possibilities for contamination. You know, we just saw the guy from the Sacramento Kings have to go into quarantine for two weeks because he got some food delivered. You're not supposed to do that. Or he he met the delivery guy, I guess, is the better way to say it. So you're just bringing more kind of factors into the bubble by having these extra teams. As I said, I think last time, my idea was the top four on the East play the bottom four in the West, and vice versa, you play four exhibition games, and then you hit the playoffs. And then you would probably wouldn't have a situation where you're playing a team that's going to be in the finals. So you basically would be playing these four exhibition games against teams that you're not likely to face in the finals because it's unlikely that any team from the bottom four will make it to the finals. And so you just play the top four in the opposite conference if you're a bottom four, and you just get four games that probably won't be seen again. But anyway, they're doing it this way, which is fine. They want the more games, the more money the the league makes, so I get it. As far as who I think is going to win, it's really, to me, more of a crapshoot. Than it, than it was before. I'm really worried about my Lakers. First problem is Avery Bradley's not going. Second problem is Rajon Rondo broke his thumb. And then I've heard some rumors about Dwight Howard not being 100% sure if he's going. And everyone says, well, they have LeBron and Anthony Davis. Yeah, but the Clippers are, are so balanced and so deep, and there's, and there's a lot of teams that are very deep. 
And as good as those two guys are, you have to have a complete roster to win right now in this league. I mean, so many teams are loaded and so many teams have depth. And, of course, like I just said, the Clippers come to mind right away that it's not, it can't be won by two guys. And if you think about it, over the last however many years, there's really been few times when it was a two-man duo who won an NBA championship. And I'm not saying that Avery Bradley is the third or Rajon Rondo is the third of the big you know group, but if you don't have that third guy, you have to be really, really balanced. And most teams that win the championships, you see three distinct leaders and three distinct best players, and the Lakers really only have two. And so what they had is such a deep and balanced roster that it made up for the fact that they only have the two main guys. So I'm worried about them. I think this probably gives a little bit of an edge to the Clippers. I really only think the Clippers, the Lakers, and Milwaukee can win it. I don't think anyone else can. I mean, I think a a different team would come out of the East, but I don't think anyone out of the East can beat the Lakers or the Clippers. And I don't think anyone in the West can beat the Lakers or the Clippers. The only scenario that I could see is if somehow the Clippers were upset early in the playoffs and then you got a really hot team that comes in and beats maybe a depleted Lakers team because of these of the situations I just mentioned but I still think that LeBron would be able to will his way to the finals if the Clippers get eliminated early I I really have a hard time seeing it not not seeing it being Lakers and Clippers in the West Finals and look I think home court advantage is a big deal in the NBA. So it's going to hurt the good teams a little bit, but I think it's going to hurt the bad teams a lot because the bad teams fuel on their crowds, their home court, their role players playing better when they're at home. And when you have a bad team or a non-veteran team, and now you don't have that home court advantage, you don't have that crowd fueling those players, then I think you lose some of that advantage. So I think we're going to see the Lakers and Clippers really breeze through the first round, I would say, and possibly the top couple teams in the East as well. The only team I'm not 100% sold on is the Toronto Raptors. And I know they've had a great regular season, but they almost seem like a team that's built for the regular season. If you guys remember back with the San Antonio Spurs, when they weren't winning championships, when they had that big span in between championships, it's because they were built for the regular season and they killed everybody. You know, Pop knows how to win. He knows how to scout. He knows how to get the best out of his guys. And they killed all the bad teams in the in the regular season. They always beat those bad teams. And even when he rested guys, their, their second team would beat those bad teams. And then you got to the playoffs where it was like a superstar game and the Spurs struggled, and they they'd lost in the first round to Memphis a couple times, and they were they were out early a lot in between winning those championships there for a while, and I felt like it was because they were built for the regular season. They were built to win game in and game out. They were built to you know rest guys and win over the eighty two game span. But then when it comes down to a must win game in a playoff game, they just didn't have the guys. And that's what I kind of feel about Toronto. And um, so I think it's possible they could lose maybe in the in the second round or something like that. I, I don't think that they're going to be a, 
a representative in the final. But that's just my opinion. I still would love the Lakers to win. Like I said, I think the Clippers probably have a little bit of an advantage now, but those that's who I would really pick still is the Lakers. Moving to Zion, it's really interesting because I'll just let you guys know, I've had two kind of coaching, I don't want to say idols, but like coaches that as I was coming up, I used them as mentors, even though I didn't know them, I just kind of learned from them. And of course, one of them was Coach K. And, you know, the first thing I did when I was a high school coach is I bought all of Coach K's DVDs and I studied them and I learned from them. And then I kind of picked and cho- picked and shoot, chose what I liked from them. And the other one was Ben Howland. He was a UCLA coach at the time. UCLA is my favorite college. And when they were really good and they went to back-to-back Final Fours, he was the best defensive coach in the nation, I felt. And I got... I was fortunate enough to see him speak at a coaching clinic and I just kind of modeled my defense after what he did and I just love the way he coaches defense and so those are kind of the two guys that I've always kind of admired as a coach and you know the great thing about Duke is they'd never gotten in trouble before and now this could be the first you know the first brick getting knocked down in the wall of their kind of immortality of their, you know, angelic history. And I hope it's not because I hope that coach K has done it the right way because he's inspiring if you do it the right way. And just about everybody else has gotten in trouble. Everybody else that's been at the top has gotten in trouble from North Carolina to Kansas to Kentucky, you know, coaches, um, individual coaches, you know, NC state coach, all these guys, Everybody has been in trouble except Coach K. And I always feel like it's so awesome that he has always done it the right way. And maybe I'm naive to think that, but this kind of is the first kind of uh uh-oh moment for me. And look, it's possible that his family was given this money outside of Coach K's knowledge and Coach K's staff's knowledge, it's possible. I don't know. Look, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt this one time because it's the first time. But it doesn't look great. Now, and I might be ignorant for this thought, and I know there's going to allow players to make money off their likeness now, but what I'm, what I, my question is, not, not from Duke, but in general. You know, you, These players are receiving money from shoe companies. So what happens if they got a job with a shoe company? Like, for instance, regular student X goes and gets a job with Nike, and he gets a salaried position, and he's a college student, and he makes, let's say, $70,000 a year. He has a nice job with Nike. Well, no one would, would care at all about that. No one would even know. My players, you know, I'm, I'm a college basketball coach. A lot of my players have jobs. One of my players works for Pizza Hut. I don't think Pizza Hut is giving him $400,000. But let's pretend that that same player that I coach got a job with Nike and they paid him $60,000 a year for his job while he played college basketball and he just so happened to wear Nike shoes. Is he doing something illegal? And I don't know the answer. And again, if if I'm ignorant for this, then I apologize. But what is to stop a company like Adidas or Nike from hiring a player like Zion Williamson and paying them a huge salary. 
and and if and having that person actually work there. Maybe they work there a few number of hours, but a regular student can do that. I don't know if there's rules in the NCAA about not being able to work if you're a college student, but I know my college players do, so I don't think that's a rule. So that is the first question I have, and this is not me trying to give Duke a pass. I, these are just questions that I have. And then the other question is, well, so many big-time recruits' dads have gotten jobs as assistant coaches where their sons are playing. And the kid from Missouri, who his name eludes me right now, is the last one I can think of, where his dad got a job as assistant coach and he brings his son along. Well, how much are they paying his dad? Because if they're paying his dad $400,000, then there's there's no one in the world that thinks that money is for the dad. Well, it's it's for the family, just like Zion's money was for the family as well. So how come it's allowed that you can hire someone's dad to be a coach and pay them a coaching salary and that's okay, but obviously if you're just getting money from Adidas, but why couldn't you just get a job with Adidas and have them pay you $400,000? What to me, I don't understand what the difference is because one of them actually seems worse. The school hiring your father as a coach to get you to go there or whatever and then paying you that amount of money, that's the school actually giving this player money and this player's family. When Adidas gives money to Zion Williamson, that's a third party. So in theory, Duke could have no idea that this is happening. This is just a guy who is getting money from someone on the side, which, yes, I understand that's illegal, but it's it seems a lot less dirty than the school actually paying the family from the school because that, to me, is as bad as it gets. And yet it happens all the time and no one seems to bat an eyebrow. Bat an eye? I'm not really sure which one it is. So those are kind of the questions I have because at this point it seems kind of silly because the guys are going to get the money regardless. And they're saying now that they're going to allow people to make money. It'll be interesting now to see if they go down to high school and start giving those guys money to try to force them to certain colleges even before they get to college, you know, and even going lower than that and lower than that, you know, if it's if it's now legal to do one thing, they're going to try to start it a little earlier so they can get those guys. So this is giving being allowed to pay players based on their likeness or whatever the rule is isn't going to change a lot i don't think it's just going to mean that they're going to start going after them earlier and earlier so they can guarantee them that money when they're at the college that they want them to go to so it's a tough situation and uh i don't know if there's a a good solution but there has to be a situation there has to be a resolution to this because it seems like everyone's doing it and it's so and it's like okay well if everyone's doing it, then you have to either actually punish them or just let them all say it's okay. And it really, I don't think, would change a whole lot because those schools get the most publicity, so they will be on TV the most and whatnot. So it's it's a long discussion, but I, those are some things that I've kind of I've always thought about. And again, I don't know what the right answer is, and I hope I'm not saying things that are stupid because... I don't know because I'm ignorant to what the actual answers are. So anyway, moving on um, to the analytics section, I want to talk a little bit about subbing players out. And the first thing I want to say is no one likes to come out of the game. So as a coach at whatever level, you need to be very cognizant of that fact. Nobody wants to come out. 
The only people that want to come out is the couple guys who raise their hand because they're too tired. But in general, that doesn't happen. I remember my senior year of college, I became a starter. And the very first game, I was just so winded. And I called myself out in the first half. And the coach took me out. And I was playing fine. And he forgot to put me back in in the rest of the first half. And I sat out the whole rest of the first half. And I was just like, okay, well, I'm never doing that again. Never doing that again. Because I didn't want that to happen again. And I ended up leading the conference in minutes, which is hilarious. But again, very few people call themselves out. And it's good that when people do, because I would rather a guy as a coach call himself out than play at less than capacity, because it hurts the team. But that's, that's not what I really want to talk about here. Most of the time, guys don't want to come out. And the younger they are, the more emotional they're going to be about it, because the, the more immature they are, the, the less in control of their emotions they are. So as a coach, number one, I require all, you know, if someone puts their hand out to high five you, you better darn well high five them back. I don't care how pissed you are. This is a team. And if we're going to be a team, then if someone want, you know, is cheering you on, even if you played terrible, even if you're mad, even if you're pissed off at everybody, you still act like a teammate and you, and you high five them back. And I'll tell you right now, if I ever catch a person not high fiving their teammates or coaches when they come off the bench, they'll probably not go back in the game. And it's just a lesson. It's a, it's a lesson that as soon as you teach it to one guy, then everybody knows because they know you're watching for it too. But the main thing that I want to say about subbing players out is, well, two things. Number one, you can't have rabbit ears, okay? And rabbit ears means that you are listening for them to make little comments. And you can't do that because they're emotional. And even in college, with these college kids, they say stuff too. And I usually, if I know they're unhappy about coming out because either they're not playing well or they don't think it's their time, I usually try to stay away from them on the bench so I don't accidentally hear something derogatory. And if my assistant coach want to tell me something later, then that's fine. But I would rather not hear it in the moment because, again, they're emotional emotional people. The other thing that I think is the most important part of this small topic is especially if things aren't going well for you as a coach or for them as a player, give them a couple minutes. Don't like, let's say they screwed something up, okay? And I know some coaches, and I've done this too, you pull them out real quick, you tell them what they did wrong, and you put them right back in, okay? So they get their tiny little penalty, and then they go right back in. And I think that's a good teaching moment. So they lose a possession or two of their time, and then they go right back in, and now, in theory, they've learned something, and, and you've made your point to them. But if you're not doing that, don't send an assistant coach down to them. Don't go down to them and start tearing into them. If you're mad, if they're mad, definitely give them some time because when they're pissed off or when you're pissed off, nothing positive is going to come from that. If you go down there and you tear into a guy five seconds after he goes out, first of all, he doesn't feel great already because if you're pissed off, it's because he did something wrong or the team isn't playing well. So going down and tearing into him even more is only going to make a guy who doesn't who isn't feeling good feel worse. No one's out there trying to lose or trying to play bad, so they already feel bad. And if they're pissed off, they're going to they have a possibility they might mouth off to you or more likely they're really not listening to you because they're fuming and they're thinking about what happened. So even with my assistant coaches, and I I definitely had an assistant coach who I would say, "Hey, give him a minute," and then he would immediately go because he 
just like to do something sometimes, just say, hey, don't no one, just give them a minute, give them two minutes, let them calm down, and then we'll go down there and say what needs to be said. And there's no, you know, like I said, you're not putting the guy back in immediately, so there's no reason to rush down there and tell him unless you think you're going to forget. But what you do is you tell your assistant coach, hey, we need to talk to him about his closeouts, okay? And then you have your assistant write that down on his notepad and just in case you forget. So now a couple minutes pass by, someone shooting free throws or something like that, you walk down to the other end and you give the guy a chat and you tell him what he did wrong and how he needs to be better or, and whatever the case may be. And you've had a chance to cool off. He's had a chance to cool off. And it can be a constructive conversation instead of a negative one from either from either side. So when I sub players, and look, I'm, I've been guilty of this, but in general, that's the kind of way I think about it. And that's the way I think most quality coaches do. Um, and look, we've all seen a coach tear into somebody right when they come out. And sometimes it's necessary because sometimes you've told that guy that thing enough times that they should know it and they need to be yelled at. So it's not 100%. It's a situation by situation, but I'm just talking about in general. Give the guy a minute to calm down and cool off and give yourself some time to, to collect your thoughts so you can go and have a constructive conversation with the person. In the strategy session here, I want to talk about boxing out drills. And I am a huge boxing out guy. I think we work on boxing out, if not five days a week, four days a week. It's so important as a, as a smaller college head coach, we're usually, especially in non-conference games, playing against teams that are bigger and stronger and more athletic than us. And boxing out is a huge part of staying in a game with a team like that. And in conference, if you can control, look, I, I, I you know, there's a mantra and I've, I don't know where it came from, but I say you can't rebound, you can't win. And if you can't control your defensive glass, there's no way you can win because when you get, it's so hard to get a stop in college basketball. And when you get that stop, if they just lay the ball in because they get an offensive rebound or, or get another possession, either you're getting deflated because of an easy two points after you did a nice job stopping them, or you get deflated and now you have to play defense for another 30 seconds. So offensive rebounds are killers. They're momentum builders. Just everything that can go against you if you can't box your guy out is what happens when a team gets offensive rebounds. And there's a, a, a video of Coach K's from years ago, and I don't even know how famous it is, but to me it always stuck with me. He was teaching rebounding, and he said that he doesn't teach boxing out because he has athletic guys, and he says, go get the ball. And it would be amazing if we all had players like that where we could just say, go get the ball. And there is on every team, hopefully one or two guys that you kind of, that I kind of don't enforce as hard boxing out because I know they're so athletic, they need to go get the ball. But when they don't box out and their guy gets the rebound, then I'm in them because the, the rule is you box out. And again, when you make rules, the world's not fair. Guys get leeway, guys don't get leeway, etc. So there's not, okay, we must do this. Every single person must do this. Yes, they must do this unless they go get the ball. If I said you must go box out every possession, but every possession you just went and got the rebound, am I going to yell at you and say go box out? No, of course not. So some people have the instincts for it, for going and getting the ball, and those guys will get a little bit of a pass. But again, 
Uh, we have a trash man outside. I don't know if you guys can hear that. But again, I think boxing out is very important. And I think really good teams do a really good job of boxing out. Really good defensive teams. So the first thing when talking about boxing out is you want to create a little bubble. And now that they have the charge circle on most courts. Okay, as I was saying, you, you want to create a bubble around the basket and the middle of the paint. And the charge circle is a good model, but you want to be a little wider than that because the charge circle is pretty you know, near to the hoop. And you want your bubble to be about halfway up the paint and then guys just outside the paint on either side. So you can control most of that area. And it usually takes about three guys to do that. Because you think about it, you usually the other team has one guy getting back and one guy shooting. And sometimes the one guy getting back who's shooting is the point guard, and so he'll shoot and get back. And you might have four come to the glass. But in general, most teams are going to send three, three and a half guys to the glass. So you really need that little bubble of three guys, one in the middle and one on each side. And of course, it's not going to end up exactly like that. But you really want to try to get your guys on the inside of their guys and the bubble has to be big enough that every single rebound is not going to just go over your guy's head because you know the worst thing is your guy is inside but he's pushed so far down inside that every rebound goes over your guy's head and goes right to the offensive guy so there's three drills that I do in general for boxing out I don't know if they're the best drills but they're drills that I like and I think they add to toughness so the first drill I do is I just put a basketball down on the ground and everyone has a pair and basically you have to try to keep your, so there's one offensive guy, one defensive guy. You're not using, you're not shooting the ball set on the ground and you basically just have to almost fight the guy for 10 seconds and try to not let him touch the ball. And so I'll say go and you're supposed to box the guy out for as long as you can. And all he has to do is just touch the ball with his hand. You can't let him, and you say no diving because you don't want people's ankles to get rolled. And you say no kicking, you have to touch the ball with your hands. And you let these guys fight. And it's really hard to box out for 10 seconds. If you think about it, by the time a shot is released and the ball gets rebounded, it's probably three seconds maybe. So asking guys to do 10 seconds is really hard. And that's what's good about it. And I make the loser and there's always a loser and a winner if if the offensive guy touches it he's the winner if the defensive guy stops him he's the winner the loser has to do five push-ups and we'll do it probably about twice each and it's really hard and really tiring and it toughens guys up and everybody gets nicked up a little bit but that's good and that's the first that's kind of like a warm-up to boxing out and we'll do that not as often as the other two but if, we, if I feel like we're not being tough, then that's the drill we'll do to, to warm us up to really box out. The second one I do is pretty basic also. We, what we do is put two lines at the elbows and, and then just have the front guys in the line turn around. And I just shoot the ball and the two guys just have to box out. And the offensive guys, if they get an offensive rebound, just go to the end of the line. And the defensive guys have to keep going until not only do they get a rebound, but both guys do a good job of boxing out. Because sometimes you can miss a box out and the ball will bounce right to the other guy, or you'll miss a box out and the ball will bounce right to you. 
and you didn't really do your job. And to me, what's important in all of these drills, actually not the first drill, not the, the tapping the ball, because 10 seconds is really hard and some people can't do it because it's such a long time, it's unrealistic. But in every other drill, and I think you should, I think most people should use this policy in general, you don't want to let someone off the hook in a drill. If they can't do it, they got to do it again. And if they can't do it, they got to do it again. And you got to do it 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 until you, until you pass. Because the second you let them off the hook, all right, just go to the end of the line. Don't worry about it. Well, now you've taught them that, that losing is okay, that not finishing a drill is okay, that not being successful in, in a drill is okay. And I think that's the wrong mentality. And sometimes it might take so many times, you know, I've had guys in other drills where they're basically on the verge of tears. And look, I love all of my, all my players and, and it kills me because I want them, I'm rooting for them. I'm gonna give them every break, but they still have to get it done because otherwise they won't get any tougher, they won't get any better. And they will understand that there is a way out without winning and I don't, and without being successful, I should say, not even without winning, but without, being successful. And sometimes it might take them, not in a boxing out drill, but in, in a drill 20 times. And then hopefully next time it only takes them 15 times. And, th- and they get better and better and better because they they feel the success and they remember what they did to be successful. You know, it's just like if you miss 20 shots in a row and you quit. No, you got to feel it go in. And then the next time you make more and then you make more because you, you start to know the feeling of being successful at anything. And then you can do it better and better and better. So with these boxing out drills, I will never let a group out until they, until they do it successfully. And we just basically go through a couple times each side, maybe four or five minutes, and then we move on. And the third drill that we do for boxing out, and I mean there's others, but these are more of the drill ones. There's some other stuff that we do where we pass the ball around and I'll just throw my hands up and then whoever has the ball will shoot it. But as far as like a basic boxing out drill. The third one I do is a moving kind of box out drill. So what you do is you put four guys on the perimeter, they're on offense, and you put four guys in the paint. And what they're required to do is kind of jog in a circle. And it's good if you run a zone, and it's good just for rotations, because in a game, if you're a good team, you're going to be rotating a lot, and you're going to end up with guards on bigs and bigs on guards and whatnot. So you got to be able to box out everybody. So what we do is we have them run in a circle, jog in a circle, and you're always facing the ball. You're always facing your man and you're just kind of jogging. And as you get from person to person, you call that person's name out because you want to let your teammates know who you got when the ball goes up. So now there's, it's like a team. So you have these four guys that are kind of jogging in a circle, calling out names. And each time they jog, as they're jogging in this little small circle, there's guys in the corner. I got him. Then they, then they go underneath the hoop. Oh, I got him. Now they're moving up the paint. Oh, I got him. And so you're constantly calling each guy's name out as you get to him. So everybody's talking, which is great. And then when the ball gets shot, everyone in theory who's called their guy out should know who they're going to go and box out. And then you have the offensive guys come charging in from the three-point line, which is way harder than your usual box out in the game, which is what we want. We want it to be harder than it is in a game. And you got to get a rebound. And again, you're going to get nicked up a little bit because you have these offensive guys who are flying in at you. And that's really hard because they have all the momentum. And in a game, they won't have all the momentum because they won't just be standing there waiting to run in. They'll be running an offense, you know, waiting for the ball, etc. So 
we're making it harder, but you got to do it. And this is this is one of the drills where sometimes a group of four, maybe they don't have the most athletic guys on the team, maybe they don't have the strongest guys on the team, maybe an offensive team has all of our athletes on it, and it's really a struggle for them to get there because we make a rule you got to get two stops in a row. And with good teams, you want to go maybe three stops in a row. So we go two stops in a row and you're out, and then we rotate. And there's times where one group will take the entire time and they can't get out and we'll just go and we'll go and we'll go and and you see it's it's always funny the first couple times and I and what I usually do also is five push-ups if a team gets an offensive rebound because otherwise your only motivation is to get out of the drill and if you give up an offensive rebound and there's no punishment who cares okay we've we've only been there one possession and then we get a stop and then we give another one okay who cares it's only been three possessions but if you're doing push-ups every time then it doesn't become fun anymore because there is a punishment. And I think that small thing keeps the beginning of the defensive group more engaged because you really, it's not even how much push-ups or how much punishment you do. It's the fact that you have to do something, which you don't want to do. And competitive people don't want to do that. And so that's why we do just a small punishment, five push-ups. And the offensive guys like it too because they like winning and they like seeing their teammates have to do push-ups. So it, it's, it works out great. And so we'll do that and we'll do that. And then we'll go defense to offense, new group on. And we'll go about two times each. And it should only take about 10 to 12 minutes. And as your players get better at it, it should take less and less time. And I think the hardest part as a coach is to get the offensive guys to go super hard to go get the ball. Because, again, sometimes it's their friends. Sometimes they feel bad for them. And I don't want to give them a punishment for not getting an offensive rebound because I don't think – because in theory, that's the whole point of the drill is they shouldn't be getting offensive rebounds. So, And again, going back to the concept of boxing out, I think boxing out is the lower the level you are, the more important boxing out is. And I'm sure most of the people listening are lower levels. If you think about really young kids and a ball goes up, you just see a mass of kids standing in the middle of the paint all with their hands up. And it's basically the you know the tallest kid or whoever the ball bounces to gets the ball. Even when you get to young high school kids, middle school kids, it's really just a bunch of hands in there jumping and trying to get the ball. So the earlier you can teach your kids the concept of boxing out, the earlier they are going to have an your your team is going to have an advantage over other teams because you're going to get those extra rebounds when on the other end if it's just a jumping contest it's going to be 50-50. So if you can get younger kids, high school, you know, high school varsity kids should be boxing out, but at some of the younger levels it's harder to get these guys to do that. So the more you can get teams to box out at a younger level, the bigger advantage you're going to have in a game. So that's it for today. Hope everyone's doing well. Hopefully we get the NBA going. We'll be back to talk about the NBA once it gets rolling here and hopefully we can uh, have some sports this fall because I know myself and all of you guys probably starting to get even more worried than we were although I've been worried this whole time that things aren't going to happen but hopefully with this NBA getting going we can get everything else going at the at the lower level so with that we'll talk to you guys next time